AFL-CAO President Rich Trumka, who died August 5th, returned to Federation headquarters yesterday for the last time, giving the public the opportunity to pay its respects to the labor legend. Labor History Today pays our respects today with Part 2 of our 2019 interview with Trumka, in which he talks with labor historian Joe McCartan about the current state and the future of the American labor movement. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. From the country to the town, three sad buses held us down. Back at the start when the ground was laid, plenty tough than you. Chris Garlock here with this week's Labor History Today. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to Labor History Today on your favorite podcast app, where you can also spread the word by liking and following us. Teacher strikes, Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, the student movement, all of those are collective action that for years you never saw. People didn't believe in themselves. Now they know. Mm-hmm. Then if they're going to make progress, they can't look to anybody but themselves to make that progress. Mm. That's AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka talking with Labor History Today's Joe McCartan. In part two of our interview, Trumka talks about the current state and the future of the American labor movement. I, I'm more excited about the labor movement right now than I was in 1967 when I said, I swear the allegiance to the United Mine Workers of America. <laughs> Because uh, I, first of all, I see more, I feel more, and, and I'm excited by what's happening with collective action. Also on today's show, the occupation of pizza delivery drivers has never been fertile territory for union organizers. Yet the early years of the 2000s saw a variety of different strategies. They wanted to be the first union to organize over the internet. I guess that sounds good in theory. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon spoke to labor attorney Mark Potashnik about Jim Poley, the founder of the American Union of Pizza Delivery Drivers, class action lawsuits, and the app-based revolution in food delivery services. Mark is based in St. Louis and has spent a significant portion of the last 17 years working with pizza drivers. All right, here's the show. We pick up our interview with Richard Trumka with Labor History Day's Joe McCartan describing Trumka's election as president of the AFL-CIO on September 16, 2009. Here's Joe. Yeah, some things really picked up after that, mm-hmm. a new dedication to organizing and yep. political action and other things. Um, but um, o- only about four years into, five years into that, you were hit by two major things, which was, of course, the election of 2000, which was a huge setback, uh, and then 9-11, both of those blows coming within 12 months of each other. And it seemed like, at least to me, uh, at the time that a sea change happened where 
uh, a lot of the promising things that were underway. Now we're running into huge obstacles, um, politically and even internationally. The whole shape of the world was changing. So, how did it seem to you in in that moment? Um, yeah, I, uh, there was this. Uh, prior to that period of time, no one was. Uh, afraid to, to push the government for change mm-hmm. or to push the government for higher wages or better laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, a uh, number of people got a little fearful of it because no one wanted to look like they weren't in lockstep with uh, mm-hmm. the patriotism that the, the country was looking for, quite frankly, needed. Um, and so there was a, it slowed things, the momentum slowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they started coming after us uh, and attacking us again. And you had uh, the same thing uh, mm-hmm. that had occurred before. And then you get hit with uh, the, the 2008 fiasco mm-hmm. with the economy where we almost yeah. implode. Right. Uh, and then everybody was trying to fix that. Right. Uh, so you had a lot of stuff there. So there's like, you know, eight years of turmoil from, you know, Bush being elected to 9-11 to the Great Recession and it's right on the heels of that that you take over the AFL-CIO so it's like you took over the AFL-CIO at a moment of peril in a sense and maybe you know sort of similar to when you took over the mine workers uh, you know coming out of the difficulties of the 70s so you're elected 10 years ago in a you know in a time when labor is really in for a fight, yeah. So, but that's always sort true, of right? been that's <laughs> sort of been what I've done all my life. Right. I've always swum upstream. I mean, I've yeah. always been against the current, and I never, uh, I never really loved fights, but I never ran away from one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it was another time for us to buckle down, and we did. We, you know, we started changing things here to make us ourselves more efficient start pushing for more, uh, uh, a stronger voice and a clearer voice that's directed for, for workers, and, and we started doing that. Uh, we started uh, standing up, and uh, I, I would characterize it as becoming the tip of the spear. Mm-hmm. Rather than being in the middle of the shaft, right. we were at the tip of the spear when it comes to immigration, when it comes to yeah. racism, well, when it came to workers' rights, when it came to health and safety, when it comes to a number of things, mm-hmm. we moved up from the middle of the shaft to the tip of the spear and started pushing again, started pushing again for improvements. And uh, uh, we saw, you know, a, a sea change out there. Right. And, you know, I don't, I don't take credit for all of it. Some of it was just workers sick of a system, right. an economic system that didn't work for them, and a political system that didn't work for them, and said, that's it. We're going we're gonna to start doing our own, doing what's right for us. And right. we capitalized on that. So you have, you got more political action going on right now. You got more collective action going on right mm-hmm. now. We organized a quarter of a million people two years in a row. We'll right. do more than that. We elected a thousand new members, uh, uh, union members to office uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're starting to, the momentum is starting to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have know, a higher approval rating than we've had in 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people are out there saying unions are good again. You got every one of the Democratic candidates now speaking up 
and, and defending unions and saying we're the hope, that collective bargaining is the way to do things. So they've picked up on our narrative, uh, and we're we're starting to move a little bit forward on things, and it's pretty exciting because I haven't seen this much collective action for a long, long, long time. Right, the teacher strikes, for example, the past year and a half or so. Teacher strikes. Yeah. Me Too movement. Right. Black Lives Matter movement. Right. The student movement. Right. All of those are collective action that, right, for years you never saw. Right. People didn't believe in themselves. Now mm-hmm. they know mm-hmm. that if they're going to make progress, they can't look to anybody but themselves to make that progress. Mm. And so they're starting to lock arms and move forward. And I got to tell you, from my point of view, it's one of the most exciting things I've seen in a long, long time. What, becoming the tip of the spear, I think, you know, I suspect historians looking back at this era and the era of your. Uh, involvement in the leadership of the FLCO. There are a couple of key things I think that happened. One is a shift in the labor movement stance on the immigration question, which happened when when Sweeney was president and you were secretary treasurer. And the AFL, you know, uh, made a kind of a historic turn to embrace um, immigrants, even those who hadn't come here w- uh, with papers. Um, and the second thing is on the question of race, and that is that um, the FLCIO helped elect our first African-American president. And in that election, you gave a very important speech on race um, that was circulated widely on YouTube um, that, in fact, like called attention to and called out some of the you know, racist tendencies that have been part of our past, including even in the labor movement. But you called people to a sort of a higher standard in that moment. Could you talk about both of those things? You know, uh, uh, when uh, Barack uh, was running, um, I saw our our middle-level managers out there were, were a little reluctant to embrace him and to urge our members to, to vote for him. Uh, and because uh, those members are ones that elect them as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I saw that. I thought we needed to create some space for that so that they could actually have somebody to point to mm-hmm. uh, if things didn't go the way we wanted them to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I thought I could be that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I made the speech that I did and talked about uh, Barack and, and chided people and said, mm-hmm. I said two things actually mm-hmm. in that speech. I said, if you're not voting for Barack Obama because of the color of his skin, mm-hmm. you're wrong, mm-hmm. and that violates our values. Mm-hmm. But if you're not voting for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman, a woman, you're also uh, wrong, and you're mm-hmm. violating our, our values. Mm-hmm. And so it was a two-pronged attack, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it took off. And people then, our middle-level managers, uh, district leaders and things, had they said, see... The national leaders want us to do this. We have to do this. This is what's best for us. Mm-hmm. And we gave them the space that they needed. Uh-huh. But, but you know, I, I'll tell you something, Joe. Uh, that, that speech is the one that went viral. Yeah. But, but I gave a speech down at the Virginia AFL-CIO. Uh, it talked about Bacon's Rebellion, which mm. occurred not too far 16, away from 76. where uh, Williams were, yeah, a hundred yeah. years before, right? Uh, yeah, you know, Lincoln and yeah. whatnot, and right. uh, I, I talked about that, uh, mm. Bacon's Rebellion, and how white 
uh, indigent uh, servants and black slaves came mm-hmm. together uh, in a ray in, in a, to, to join because they were getting screwed. They were both mm-hmm. getting treated the same. Uh, and then the power of that, how the gentry mm-hmm. saw the power of that, and they crushed the rebellion, killing Bacon and I think 24 others they hung mm-hmm. uh, to crush that rebellion. And many believe, uh, many sociologists believe that that's the genesis of racism. Uh, because white landowners kept telling their white indentured servant, mm-hmm. "You're better than them. They're, they're just slaves. You're you're better mm-hmm. than them." Even though you were both treated economically the same, you right. were you were both slaves in a right. sense. Right. Uh, you were both uh, being misused, abused, uh, killed, crippled, and maimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were trying to make them believe that they were somehow better, and yeah. that was the hope that they had. And they tried to they used it to divide us, and they were. Mm-hmm pretty successful quite frankly uh, over the years and I actually thought that that speech was a better speech and more effective. But you it never, take that one out. It, like never, to see that. it never went uh, it never went you know, viral. The, the argument you make there is uh, very much like uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning history book by a guy named Edmund S. Morgan and it was called American Slavery, American Freedom and he you know, that's what he was saying about that that uh, rebellion. That it was it was after that that uh, the elite really tried to divide the color line even more. And yeah, they used race. That yeah. was whenever they they yeah. used race to divide us with because right. they saw the power. Yeah. When, when they saw poor people, white poor people, and black poor people coming mm-hmm. together, they knew that that was a powerful, powerful thing. Yeah. They didn't want to face it, and so they figured out a way to divide us, uh, and it exists till this very day. And today we also struggle with the question of division over immigration. And again, in your era, the AFL's been a real leader on this whole set of questions, but it's certainly been one that's also been a struggle. It's been a dividing point um, among Americans in recent years, uh, you know, um, certainly living in the era of Donald Trump's effort to build a wall has made made this uh, an issue really at the forefront. So you came from immigrant stock. Your parents were both immigrants. And so talk a little bit about how you see the immigration issue today and what's the way forward? You know, I, I think you have to, to look at uh, the immigration issue on, on a couple of different levels. Uh, and uh, what I try to do is find somebody's self-interest and they ought to do something because it's in their self-interest. I've always found that uh, people are more motivated when it's going to help them. Mm-hmm. There, there's a moral issue, yeah. in my opinion. It's just, this is a, a nation of immigrants. Mm-hmm. We were born by immigrants. There was, unless you're Native American, Mm-hmm. All of us are immigrants mm-hmm. somewhere along the line. Some more recently. Some unwilling, but everybody. Some, yeah, well, yeah. We just, yeah. black people came yeah. here unwilling. That's right. Yeah. Slaves came here right. unwilling. Yeah. Uh, a number did, but uh, the, so the immigrant issue, you know, it, for yeah. me came pretty easy. Because yeah. everything they're saying about immigrants today, mm-hmm. uh, a generation ago, they were saying about my parents and my grandparents. Mm-hmm. They were saying the same exact thing. They're going to take our jobs. They came here to divide us. They, they're not Americans. They don't integrate. Uh, and and uh, I, we tried to figure out a way to, to bridge that thing. And so when, when John and I were together, I was Secretary of Treasury at the time, uh, we got a guy by the name of Ray Marshall. 
Oh, um, that, Ray yeah. Marshall uh, was Jimmy oh, Carter's labor secretary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we, we got him to actually be a conciliator with us and mm-hmm. brought us all together. Mm-hmm. And we were able to, to figure out a position on immigration where we all agreed, and we mm-hmm. could then define it in in terms. So if you if you don't think it's morally right, there's also a, an economic mm-hmm. reason yeah. for you to agree to. Uh, pathway to citizenship for mm-hmm. uh, undocumented workers. Mm-hmm. If if my employer plays by all the rules, mm-hmm. health and safety rules, pays me to write pay, classifies me to write thing, and you're the, the employer of my competitor cheats them out of wages, cheats them, uh, misclassifies them, makes them work in unsafe, unhealthy conditions, uh, and we're bidding on the same work, mm-hmm. he's going to win, and then the pressure's on my employer to go down, not up, right. to go down. Uh, so they're being abused and used against us, and if you want to stop that, right. the best thing you can do is help them get equal rights, help immigrant workers get equal rights, so they can't be used and abused mm-hmm. and used as a, a hammer to hit you with, mm-hmm. because they're not our enemy. Mm. Workers are just trying to make a living. Right. Whether you're a Mexican worker, a Canadian worker, or you're in Australia, France, Germany, you're trying to make a living. Uh, and so they're not our workers, are not our enemies, they're our you know, co-workers. Uh, and so we were able to come up with a position to do that. There, mm. there was still reluctance. Yeah. But, but yeah. it gave us, it gave us the, the opportunity that we needed and the policies that we needed to be able to, to, to push forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I sort of do. Yeah. I mean, when I was president of mine workers, I had Alabama mine workers mm-hmm. strike into end apartheid. Yeah. Uh, because it was, I showed mm-hmm. them how it was in their best interest mm-hmm. for us to be able to end apartheid. Mm-hmm. And so, when you show people Mm-hmm. that what you're asking them to do is in their self-interest and tell them how, mm-hmm. uh, they generally, mm-hmm. they do the right thing. My, my experience, my experience right. in 52 years in the labor movement is when mm-hmm. you give workers the facts, they make the right decision every time. Right. Not occasionally, not most of the time, they make the right decision every time when they have the facts. Mm-hmm. And I just have this absolute faith and trust in, in workers and so we gave them the facts and they ran with it. Mm. So 10 years now into your presidency as you look at the world today um, we're coming up on a big election um, we're still struggling in some ways with some of the after effects of that economic change going back even to the great recession in terms of inequality that exists in the country. Um, how do you see the priorities of the labor movement looking forward? Well, uh, first let me frame sure. you know, where yeah, I, 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 I think we are. Uh, the country unknowingly embraced neoliberalism uh, mm-hmm. for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the, the, quote, conservative movement is based on neoliberalism. That mm-hmm. Anything that gets in the way of a free market 
is right. to be eliminated. A quote-unquote free market. Yeah, <laughs> often it's well, it's not really it isn't free, free. Right? It isn't all-knowing right. and it isn't fair. Right. Right. Uh, but that's what it is. As George yeah. Will once said uh, that unions make the system capitalism barely tolerable. <laughs> uh, so he understood where we were, where we were at, and where we were going to. So, but but you you have um, that there was this belief that if you got everything out of the way. Uh, of the marketplace, everything would be hunky dory. Yeah. So they started doing away with regulations, and you know, there's a limit. You could say some things could get overregulated, mm -hmm. but some things could be then under underregulated, right. and that's what happened to the Great Recession. Yeah. Capitalism got underregulated. The same with health and safety. The same with uh, uh, different things. Uh, uh, unions, uh, we got in the way of the market, so they yeah. tried to get rid of us. Right. Uh, all of those things conspired uh, to the point where for three or four decades now, uh, the economic system and the political system in this country haven't been working for working people. And so they get so fed up with it, they, they wanted the rules changed. And you asked me what the priority of the labor movement is? Mm -hmm priority is to change the rules of the economy mm -hmm. so that it works for every worker out there. Mm -hmm. And that means tax rules, that means trade rules, mm -hmm. that means health and safety regulations, that means everything along down the line that mm -hmm. works for working people. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we want what workers need. Mm -hmm. That's our mantra. Mm -hmm. We try to provide them with what they need. Mm -hmm. uh, and they need a fair place to work. They need good wages. Mm -hmm. fair wages, they need health care, they need a pension, they need a quality education for them and their kids, they need a, a continuing system that allows them to upgrade their skills uh, on a regular basis to keep pace with the changing economy and, uh, and the skills that are needed in that economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what we stand for, that's who we are, that's what we'll always be. When you look ahead, what gives you inspiration? Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, we organized a quarter of a million workers uh, last year, and 75% uh, uh, of them were under the age of 35. Uh, the fact that young people see us uh, more and more as the solution uh, to their problems, not just good people, because uh, that's what they used to say, you're good people, you do good work for my dad and my mom, but you don't work for me. Now they see us working for them. Uh, that gives us inspiration. All the collective action that's coming uh, coming together out there right now uh, mm -hmm. gives me tremendous uh, excitement. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it is the teachers' movement, the Black Lives Matter student movement, the Me Too movement, uh, collective bargaining out there, seeing workers organize at the professional level, mm -hmm. at the blue collar, pink collar, uh, no collar uh, level coming together because they say we need to help and the only way we can do that is with each other. That gives me tremendous. So more, I, I'm more excited about the labor movement mm -hmm. right now than I was in 1967 when right. I said I swear the allegiance to the United Mine Workers of America. Because <laughs> uh, I, first of all, I see more, I feel more, and, and I'm excited by what's happening with collective action. You've just told us a wonderful story of your own life and career in an abbreviated version, of course. Um, uh, let me conclude with um, this question with you, and that is, how important is knowing history uh, for workers and your movement? You know, 
Let me give you my own history on that, Joe. Uh, I, I hated history when I was in. When <laughs> Most I was people in, tell me that. <laughs> when, when I was in high school, I hated yeah, it. Right. And then I got to law school. I mean, I got to college, and I had to take an elective. Yeah. And one of the electives I decided to take uh, was uh, the Civil War, a course mm-hmm. on the Civil War. And that course was offered Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday mm-hmm. at 8 a.m., Okay. And I thought to myself, the chances of that Saturday class are <laughs> not real good. <laughs> Thursday, uh, maybe. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tuesday, I'll get there. Uh-huh. Uh, but but the, the professor was so absolutely fascinating. Here's mm-hmm. what he did. When he was coming up to a battle, he would take out the leaders on both sides. Mm-hmm. And he would teach you about their personality mm-hmm. and how their personality affected how they fought a battle. Mm-hmm. A- and I was so fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. So he asked me to do some research for him, and I did some research. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me to do some more research, and I did mm-hmm. more research for him. And he asked me to read a few books, and I read a few books. And before long, I was reading books that I didn't have to read, mm-hmm. that I was just reading them because I wanted to know them. Uh-huh. And I found this out about history. Yeah. You can't know where you're going if you don't understand where you came from. Mm. There are no new strategies in this world. They only are mm. adapted to what you have. And if you look mm. at the strategies that leaders of the past used, you can figure out a strategy for today mm. if you dare to adapt it to the facts that exist today. I think no leader can be as effective as they should be and must be without having an absolute understanding and appreciation for history because you will make the same stupid mistakes <laughs> again and again and again mm-hmm. if you haven't learned from mm-hmm. what happened. Uh, and so somewhere along the line uh, in, in college, I became a, a really devout apostle is what I should mm-hmm. say, uh, of the power Mm. Uh, of history, mm. uh, our workers' history, mm-hmm. the country's history, mm. the history of nations, the history mm. of the world, mm. all of those teach you something about what's coming down the road next week or mm. next month or next year. If you dare, think about what you're doing and what has happened and what strategy they deployed. The Civil War has taught me so many lessons so many lessons mm-hmm. that I've deployed in Pittston at uh, the Consol strikes, uh, mm-hmm. a thousand different battles that I've had. I've deployed strategies, uh, modified strategies, of, yeah, course, of course, but but things that I learned and that mm-hmm. you know, leaders used uh, and workers had identified. And so I, if, if I was to say to people, one thing you need to know, other than how to read and write mm-hmm. and, and appreciate learning itself, mm-hmm. it's you got to know history, you got to know yeah. where you came from, right. and you got to appreciate it uh, and, and not try to rewrite it. Right. Uh, and and, and the, the thing that I learned even about the Civil War, there's a Southern approach and there's mm-hmm. a Northern approach, mm-hmm. and so you got to read both of them. Right. And then you can sort of formulate your own approach, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what it does. It, history is not stale facts from the past. It's a dynamic thing that leads you to the future. 
Wow, I can't imagine better words with which to conclude this um, discussion for our podcast listeners, Rich, because that's exactly our philosophy with this podcast. Um, Rich Trunka, president of the AFL-CIO, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Joe, thanks for uh, having me on, but more importantly, thanks for what you do every day to make things better for workers. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Rich. The occupation of pizza delivery drivers has never been fertile territory for union organizers, yet the early years of the 2000s saw a variety of different strategies. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon spoke to labor attorney Mark Potashnik about Jim Poley, the founder of the American Union of Pizza Delivery Drivers, class action lawsuits, and the app-based revolution in food delivery services. Mark is based in St. Louis and has spent a significant portion of the last 17 years working with pizza drivers. Here's Patrick. So in September 2006, Jim Poley, a 37-year-old ex-Marine in Pensacola, Florida, who worked for Domino's, formed the American Union of Pizza Delivery Drivers. Can you tell us how this came about? in uh, improving terms and conditions of employment for pizza delivery drivers. He had heard of prior efforts to organize that I had been involved in, and he contacted me. Jim Poley, to my knowledge, is the only one who's ever successfully organized uh, a pizza shop and uh, won a uh, NLRB election to create a bargaining unit. And what were some of Mr. Poley's concerns? I understand that pizza delivery drivers who drive around with illuminated signs advertising their occupation are particularly vulnerable to robberies, for example. Well, (laughs) I'm sure he was concerned about that. Uh, He was concerned about the low pay. He was concerned about uh, mistreatment at the pizza shop. He was uh, concerned about the vehicle cost, which effectively reduce the wages of uh, pretty much every pizza delivery driver I've ever encountered below the applicable minimum wage. And he was concerned about elevating the um, treatment of people who work in that industry as pizza delivery drivers. There's a reason that uh, they only last about six months on average. Now, I understand Mr. Poli's efforts are in some ways historic and unique, but overall pizza, pizza delivery drivers have, have found that going the union path hasn't often been very successful. Why is that? Well, in my observation, the the first pizza delivery union that uh, emerged around 2002 uh, was really ill-equipped to uh, influence people who work in the industry to unionize. I don't even think they wholeheartedly believed in what a union is and uh, 
what a union can accomplish. And they wanted to be the first union to organize over the internet. I guess that sounds good in theory, but unionizing really um, requires more personal interaction, uh, personal connection, and uh, an email from halfway across the country I don't think it's going to do the trick when uh, workers are feeling the heat and the pressure of a union election. I mean, that's what I saw in the uh, efforts that arose before Mr. Poley. And uh, with Mr. Poley, I mean, I thought he was the one who could really lead the effort. And he did organize his own pizza shop. He was involved in organizing efforts around the country. Uh, however, he became ill with cancer, and uh, that really took him out of the game. I understand in the time since then, you've been involved in many lawsuits against pizza restaurants. How, how did that come about, and has that worked a lot more effectively than the unions have? I believe so. Uh, the way it came about was that uh, Mr. Poley, who deserves a lot of the credit, had uh, in introduced me to a provision in the uh, U.S. Department of Labor handbook that uh, indicates that um, if vehicle costs uh, are not fully reimbursed, they cut into the minimum wage. And uh, there's an obvious fact out there that nearly every pizza delivery driver in the country is paid the exact applicable minimum wage rate or uh, extremely close to it. So there's no margin of, for error with the pizza businesses. You know, the other thing that he illuminated for me was the fact that pizza drivers are commonly paid less than half of the IRS standard mileage reimbursement rate. And I just, uh, did, doing the math myself, I could not duplicate the calculations that the pizza industry was doing. I could not reverse engineer it. From there, I figured that uh, these uh, cases might be ideal for class and collective action treatment because the pizza companies seem to have one method or one rate for reimbursement that they apply to everybody. We filed the initial, what I'll call, batch of nine lawsuits in spring and summer 2009, and at first, the courts didn't know what to make of this, and the pizza companies were sending me repeated, what are called in my profession, roll-lesson threat letters, <laughs> saying that uh, I'm approaching these cases without a factual basis and I'm subject to all kinds of sanctions and fines myself. So, Eventually, we were able to win the legal battles on cognizability of these lawsuits, uh, meaning 
that uh, these are actual recognized causes of action in the courts. And the tide had turned by between uh, 2009, when we first started filing them and uh, received lots of threats from pizza companies, to about mid-2013, when we started filing the same, second batch of them, when nine out of ten of them, uh, for years, that we were filing wanted to settle early. And there have been exceptions to that, too. But mm. So that's, that's the history of this. Um, these cases have uh, been incredibly successful, in my estimation, uh, until uh, 2018, when the Supreme Court said that it's perfectly legal for employers to require their employees to sign away their right to participate in a class and collective action against their own employer. And that presents new challenges to us, but you know the fight continues. And I look at it as you know, like round three of a 15-round heavyweight fight. <laughs> we're, st- we're just getting warmed up here. So uh, that's the history in a nutshell of how these cases came about. And the challenges to drivers today, are they the same as they were 10 years ago now that you have uh, all of these gig economy actors servicing some of the same market? By gig economy actors, do you mean like the uh, Uber Eats and uh, DoorDashes of the world? That's right. <laughs> well, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of the people who work in uh, the food delivery business um, that are app food drivers, as I've heard them referred to, are suffering from similar issues. There's one big difference here between uh, the app food um, industry and uh, the pizza industry. So there is a different legal challenge. In the app food industry, uh, pretty much everybody who works as a delivery driver is considered by the app whether it be uh, DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever it is, as an independent contractor, when I believe that they're all employees. And you have to win the battle of whether or not a delivery driver is an independent contractor or an employee, in addition to the usual battles of such things like uh, how do you get a class certified uh, by a court and uh, what is a reasonable reimbursement rate for the class. So that that's a whole new challenge. Now, that being the challenge, I have pursued a case like that against an app company in the last year, and that was recently resolved. And I think those... Uh, claims are, are winnable. The uh, app companies, for the most part, do require their employees to sign away their rights to participate in the class and collective action. So the new battleground there is probably individual claims. So th- that is a fundamental difference. It's been great talking to you. do appreciate you sharing your time with us. Thank you. Oh, 
you're welcome. <laughs> Glad to help. Um, thank you so much. I don't think the king woke up one morning, said all the people should be better paid. No, things were bad, but things got changed. Plenty tough and That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, where you can also spread the word by liking and following us. Today's music is Plenty Tough and Union Made by the Waco Brothers off their album To the Last Dead Cowboy. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. Day